I asked myself the question a while ago. Now, we don't have anything back here, but that's okay. We can make do with that. In 1942, this young man, Poon Lim, he was 25 years old at the time. He boarded a British merchant ship. And while they were out at sea, probably only for about three, four days, they left Cape Town. It was bombed by a Nazi U-boat, and the boat went down very rapidly. And so at that critical moment, he decided to jump ship, and for two hours, he was wrestling with the water, trying to figure out how he was going to survive until he came across this little safety raft, or this is probably after he rigged it up, but he put something together that he would then live on. He found certain supplies that were in this safety raft, a couple of biscuits, some water, and he rationed that water for a good 30 days. The same with the biscuits. He took some of the things apart for wire, ended up fishing, and by God's grace, he caught a fish, and that allowed him to use some of that for bait to catch other fish. Before it was all said and done, he killed a shark with, I was going to say the water bottle or the jug, I think, which I don't think would be easy. But he was out on the water, from what I learned this week, longer than anybody else and survived. Any guesses how long? Some of you may have been familiar with that book. I I read through Unbroken by Louis Zamperini or something like that, his story. I think he was out for 70-some days, long time, out in the sun, blistered lips, finally found and, and taken off to a concentration camp and so on. This young man stayed out in the ocean 133 days. He looked like this when when they found him. He would go out, he would swim twice a day to try and keep fit so his muscles wouldn't atrophy and and so on. And he said at at 131 days, the color of the water changed. I, I should even back up. Initially, some boats came by, he shot off some flares, nobody responded and came to his aid, and so he, he realized as he got into this thing, I'm just going to have to wait till I bump into land somewhere. 131 days into it, he sees the color of the water change and, and some kelp and some different things, and at 133 days, he saved. He walked away from that incident. He didn't even have to be hospitalized. But I, I wonder what it was like on day 7, day 14, day 65, day 100, as he's etching on this little raft to keep track of how many days have gone by. 120, 125. Do you think he would ever think to himself, this seems hopeless? Now here's a picture of the ocean. It's not quite what I wanted because there's a rock there, so maybe it's not quite as hopeless. But if you've ever been, how many of you have been out in the middle of the ocean and you can look this way and there's nothing? And this way, nothing, nothing, nothing but sky and water and sea for miles. Anybody had that experience? Hopeless. Has anybody been in a situation they feel is hopeless? That's not a good place to be. In fact, I would submit to you that if this young man at age 25 would have given in to despair and hopelessness, he never would have survived. Hope is crucial. It's what keeps people hanging on. But the devil wants to steal your hope and my hope. He wants us to be hopeless. Is it true? And so today we're going to look in this sermon, the first of six, no, it's just one, paralyzed in sin. That's the the web that the devil wants to spin, isn't it? 
He wants to paralyze you. He wants to paralyze me in sin. And so entrench us in any issue. It really doesn't matter the issue. But if he can so wrap around us and make us feel like it is hopeless, like we've tried this and we've tried that, we've gone this direction and that direction, we've read this book and that book, we've gone to this counselor and that counselor, nothing seems to work, it's hopeless. That's what the devil wants us to think. He wants to be, us to be paralyzed in our sin. And so this morning I want to look in the 31 minutes remaining. Mark chapter 2, a well-known story. Join me if you brought your Bibles. If not, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. But we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. And we're reading how Jesus forgives and heals a paralytic. And so the story begins there in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2. And again he entered Capernaum. He was just there recently. He left for a time, but now he's coming back. And after some days, it was heard that he was in the house. Now, anytime people hear that Jesus is nearby, there's a crowd. Have you ever been with somebody that is a high-profile person, where the crowds are always flocking? It's hard to ever get close and they have to slip this way and slip that way. But word gets out that he's in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Standing room only. Not even near the door. Everyone's crouching through a window, through a crack, through anything. Just to hear. Well, can you hear a little bit? Just shh. And he preached the word to them. They were being fed by the word. That's why they came. That's why the crowd was so big. For some reason, when Jesus spoke the word, this is unlike we've ever heard anybody say it before. And then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now let's pause right there. Because those verses go awfully fast. But what does it mean to be a paralytic? To not have function in one's limbs. Does that change life as you know it a little bit? Yeah. Big time. Think about what today would mean to be paralyzed. How would you have gotten ready for church? How would you have gotten up and used the restroom? How would you have gotten out of bed? How would you put your clothes on? How, who would have brought you here? Yeah, it's a big time game changer. In fact, in Desire of Ages 267, it says, this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. Has anybody been there? You go to doctors, you go to physicians, you're hoping for something that will fix what, you're, what is ailing you, right? Give me a prescription, give me a therapy, give me something I can do to avoid this pain or this discomfort or this inconvenience. And he's done all that to no avail. So this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. His disease was the result of a life of sin and his suffering was embittered by remorse. Now stop and think about that. It's one thing if you are helping this old woman across the street and a semi takes a clip at you and now you're paralyzed. That's at least valiant. But if it's your own stupidity, 
your own poor choice. And you can't be certain, but it seems as if under everyone's breath, somebody's saying, serves him right. He should have known. I mean, the church has been preaching that that's not a good idea. Well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. And he's been sleeping in that same bed year after year after year, feeling hopeless, embittered, filled with remorse. He had long before appealed to the Pharisees and doctors, hoping for relief from mental suffering and physical pain, but they coldly pronounced him incurable. Sorry, God has done this to you, and now you must suffer the consequences. So not only is he paralyzed, but he has this weight, this guilt, which weighs heavy. In fact, the hardest thing I believe to bear is guilt. Guilt has a way of producing itself or reproducing itself in the life in a lot of physical ways as well. Doctors will tell you, yes, I'm treating this and I'm treating this and I gave a prescription for that, but I think there's an underlying issue here that's probably the root cause of all of this. And often, it's connected to some form of guilt. Guilty. You did it. You know you did it. And it's that weight of that sin that is weighing you down. And so this man has that reminder each and every day. But you know, he thinks, just before this, Jesus healed a leper of all people. A leper. I mean, this is almost like the AIDS of the day, except probably a little worse. They were cast out of the camp. They were unclean. They had to be separated from their family. Yet Jesus, he came down, this man Jesus, and he knelt down and he touched the leper. And if he touched the leper, maybe there's hope for me. But then he remembers his past. He remembers his poor decisions, his poor choices. And he says, maybe Jesus will reject me. Could I handle that? Paralyzed in sin. Back and forth and back and forth until finally I imagine he comes to the point where he says, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose? As his friends are telling him about Jesus, he says, I've got to go. I imagine somebody here can relate. Maybe you're not paralyzed, but perhaps there's a sin in your life that you feel is paralyzing you from the joy, from the contentment, from the sense of purpose God wants you to have. And you feel like you'd have it, except there's this thing. And maybe it's just this one thing. It's that besetting sin that so easily entangles. Could be pride. Could be a closet alcoholic. It could be smoking. It could be overindulgence. It could be the fact that you're judgmental. It could be physical or verbal abuse. It could be lust. It could be adultery. It could be theft. It could be gambling. And I would wager, if I were a gambler, that all of those exist here this morning. But lucky for you, I'm not a gambler. And the devil loves to just hold his thumb on top of any one of us. Whether it's on the list or not, he holds you there and he says, you're not good enough. You've got to fix this thing first. And until you do, how dare you? How dare you? Do anything for God. How dare you come to church? How dare you accept a leadership position? How dare you do all these other things and he just keeps his thumb on you? 
And he says, I got them right where I want them. It was not physical restoration that he, referring to the paralytic in this story, desired as much as relief from the burden of sin. And maybe somebody here can relate to that. He was fine being a paralytic for the rest of his life. It's this burden of sin that I'm carrying that I just, it's it's too much for me. It's overwhelming me. I need relief. If he could see Jesus and receive that assurance of forgiveness and of peace with heaven, he'd be content to live or die according to God's will. So that's why he comes. He besought his friends to carry him on his bed to Jesus. He says, hey guys, will you do this for me? If you're really my friends, will you pick up this mat and carry me to Jesus? And when they see the crowd, it's his suggestion to his friends that bore him to the top of the house. We can't give up. I have to see Jesus. It's like that hymn, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. Have you sung those words? I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, Jesus can help me, Jesus alone. If that hymn existed then, I imagine that was going through his mind. His friend said, okay. You do know Jesus is in there preaching, right? I know. We'll be interrupting. Uh Uh-huh. Will you do it? Okay. And so while Jesus is preaching, not quite like a setting like we are here, but there's this rustling in the roof. There's this shifting going on. And there's this noise and there's this distraction and things are falling on Jesus. What's going on? Maybe somebody says, who's on the roof? Tell him Jesus is here and to quiet down. He's in the middle of a study. But he's resolute. I must tell Jesus. That's the first thing. Come to Jesus just as you are. That's what we must do. We have to come to Jesus just as we are. We have no other way in which we can come. You mean with the cigarette in my hand? Yep. You mean with the whiskey bottle in my hand? Yep. I just come to him as I am. And I say, Jesus, help me. Forgive me of my sin. And so there's this rustling in the roof. Things are falling, and here this is one rendition. I, I didn't find one that was my absolute favorite, but here you have the crowds, you have people outside the windows, and they've, they've made a hole. It looks like they had a skill saw. I mean, a beautiful hole. <laughs> and they lower him down. How would we respond if somebody cuts a hole? We just put this roof on. And somebody cuts a hole, and all of a sudden, this person, this tired, sickly, terrible-looking person, forgive me, but they're coming down in, in the middle of this hole in the ceiling, in the middle of our worship service. Deacons, please. This is disruptive. But I chose this one because I like to look on Jesus' face. He's like, oh, yes. I imagine he knows this person quite well. Perhaps he was praying for him to come, and he's lowered down. And let's pick up our story here. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Does that take guts, by the way? Does that take courage? Is that putting yourself out there? He doesn't care. I must see Jesus. I must. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralytic, son, and I imagine he has this big smile on his face, son, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. I mean, that's all that he wanted. That was it. He longed more than anything else for forgiveness, to have nothing between his soul and his Savior. I must tell Jesus. So come to Jesus just as you are. Secondly, humbly ask for forgiveness for your sin. Lord, I pray you forgive me for this whiskey bottle that I have in my hand right now. Will you forgive me? And Jesus says, yes, I do. But I still have it in my hand. But you've asked for forgiveness and I've granted it to you. But I don't deserve it. I know. I haven't been off of it for a period of time. That's true. But you forgive me? Uh Uh-huh. Why? Because you asked, right? Don't you want forgiveness for your sin? At that point, the whiskey bottle starts to shake. You gotta set it down. But I don't deserve this, Lord. I know. But I paid the price for you so you could be set free. And that's when the knees kind of buckle and the real heartfelt prayers start to be prayed. And friends, that's when transformation begins in the life. The devil wants us to see this backwards, right? You put down the bottle. You behave yourself. You're on probation. Where's his probation? Son, your sins are forgiven. I love this verse in John 6, 37. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You just come. You come as you are with your junk and with your stuff and with your filth. You just come, and I'm not going to cast you away. I didn't say I wouldn't clean you up. In fact, God will clean you up, but that's not the first step. He says, you just come. You humble yourself, and you come. Another favorite, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, who's the one that's faithful? He's faithful. It doesn't say, if we confess our sins and show that we are faithful. It says, he is faithful. In fact, he's the only one that can truly be faithful. Without him, we can do nothing. And that's why the devil wants to keep our thumb right on top of us and say, you gotta, you gotta own up first, you gotta have this period of time, you gotta show. He says, no, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if I want the cleansing, I have to first come and I first have to confess and then he forgives me in the midst of my filth. And then he starts to work on cleansing me from all my unrighteousness which is also by his grace, isn't it? It's all by his grace. His grace allows me to come. His grace forgives me. His grace transforms me. So going back to our story, there's some grumblers here. Son, your sins are forgiven, verse five. Now verse six, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. These were some of the same guys that this guy had gone to and he says, it's hopeless for you. You are cursed of God. And now this person is being healed. And so they're grumbling. Reasoning in their hearts, why does that, this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Is that true? 
Yes. So what are they saying? He's not God. How dare he? But immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. That's the next step. This man's been forgiven. Now Jesus says, I'm going to give power in your life to do something that nobody else can give you power to do. I'm the only one that can tell you to arise, pick up your mat, and walk. Walk in me. Walk in newness of life. Walk in the power that I alone can give you. Now pick up your mat and walk. Which is easier? And the man, what does it say? Oh, then I skip verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You mean God can use my sin? God can use my terrible reputation? God can use all of that to bring glory to him? He can because it shows what God can do with a filthy, crummy person, forgive me, because we're all that way, we all start that way, he can take that person, he can transform that person into a child of the king by his power alone. And in that transformation, God is glorified. God is glorified. Oh, well, I'm glorified. No, you're not glorified. We knew what you were. We knew you before. We knew how you used to talk and where you used to go and all those things. We know what you are capable of, but we see that this isn't you. This is God in you, and that's the only hope of glory. So last step, allow him to bring healing to your life. Let this mind be in you, says in Philippians. It doesn't say strive willpower, grit your teeth. No, you let. Just allow him to bring that healing to your life. Not as I focus on my sin with a microscope. No, as I focus on God's word with a microscope. As I study what he has to say, as I claim his promises, as I accept his forgiveness, and I'm given this new joy and this new energy and this new sense of purpose and peace of mind and all of these things, then I can walk. I can pick up my mat and I can walk And what God wants for me to do. Do you believe Jesus still heals today? Is he still in that healing business? I believe he does. It's similar to the story, if we go back just a page or so, just to read a few verses. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched the leper. Don't miss that. He touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. I love this quote. Whomever will fall at his feet, saying in faith, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean, shall hear the answer, This is whomever. This is you. This is me. This is the guy down the street, across the yard. Whomever 
He shall hear the answer, I will be thou made clean. This is a prayer God never says, not right now. Maybe later. I'm sorry it's not according to my will. He always says, I will be thou made clean. When we pray for earthly blessings, the answer to our prayer may be delayed or God may give us something other than we ask, but not so when we ask for deliverance from sin. It is his will to cleanse us from sin, to make us his children, and to enable us to live a holy life. God says, that's what I'm in the business of doing. I will always say yes to that prayer. I like this in Christ's Object Lessons 157. In the whole satanic force, there is not power to overcome one soul who in simple trust casts himself on Christ. The devil can't do it. In his whole force, there's no power to overcome that one soul who simply trusts in the name of Jesus Christ. In my last district, there was a guy who had a hard time overcoming cigarettes. That was his thing. And he had the, there was other things too, but that was the last. And he said it was one of the hardest. And he'd go bury them. He would live way out in some back holler. It was a beautiful holler. And he'd go and he'd bury those things in the ground. And then he'd just be overcome. And it doesn't matter how far he'd bury, he'd go and he'd dig it up and he'd, he'd smoke it again and all this craziness. I mean, it is craziness, isn't it? Except for the fact that you and I do it too. And he just said, you know, Pastor, what I started to do is I just started to say, every time I got washed with this temptation, I'd say out loud, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Lived all by himself back in this holler. I imagine if I would have been spying on him, I would have heard at random times throughout the day, help me, Jesus. He said, I just keep praying that prayer out loud until that would pass. And uh, did that work? He said, absolutely it worked. And I'm not smoking cigarettes anymore. I say, praise the Lord. The whole satanic force cannot overcome. Isaiah 40, verse 29, our scripture reading. Thank you, Samantha. He gives power to the weak and those who have no might, he increases strength. Well, that hurts my pride. I like to think that I have enough power you know, I, you know I, I can do this. I'll let you know when I have it accomplished. Without me, you can do nothing. He, Jesus, gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. This is another quote I actually have. This one in the leaflet of my Bible. Just added this morning. When it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, Do you see my motives? It's in my heart to obey God. I'm putting efforts towards this end. I'm trying to block out. I'm trying to not go here. I'm not trying to see that or view this or whatever because I know that those are trigger points for me. So it's in my heart to obey God. I'm making efforts to put forth to this end. Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man or woman's best service. Do you think God knows when we give our best? Sure. Do I know? No. Does anybody else in this church know? No, but God knows. And if you're giving your best, he accepts this disposition and effort as man or woman's best service, and he makes up the deficiency with his own divine merit. Now, whether you need this much or whether you need this much, it doesn't matter. God says, if you're doing your best, I'll provide the rest, period. It's kind of like the good parent, right? Tells her kids, well, just do your best. Parents know if their kids are doing their best or not. Yeah. If they're really striving for something, yeah. And the power of Jesus Christ, yeah. And he says, I'll make up the difference. 
you just give me your all. Claim the power of Jesus Christ, and I'll make up the difference. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. They've become dead. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a few verses later. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's not fair. You're right. That we might become the righteousness of God. Powerful. So Jesus heals. Isaiah 53, 5, and with his stripes we are healed. The power is available to us. That's not what the devil wants us to think. The devil wants us to think, overcome your sin first. You got an issue, this is embarrassing. Don't tell anybody about it. Why? Because accountability works, so we're not gonna, you're just gonna... mm. So overcome your sin first to prove yourself over a period of time. Well, how long? Just a little longer. Just just a little, little longer. Maybe next nominating committee. Not this one. And then come to Jesus. Sounds good. I'm going to get to step three. I'm going to come to Jesus. No, you're not. Because you're never going to overcome your sin. You're never going to be able to prove yourself over a period of time. It's a faulty method. Yet we cling to it. But there's no power there. Great controversy says, Satan is constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with his fatal sophistry that it is impossible for them to overcome. So just stop trying. You just have to live with your guilt forever. Is that the God that we serve? Just hang on to that burden. Just continue to carry that backpack and and we'll just keep putting rocks in there. It's impossible to overcome. No, that's not the God we serve. Jesus pleads in their behalf, his wounded hands, his bruised body, and he declares to all who would follow him, my grace is sufficient for thee, for you, and for me. Sounds like this verse in Hebrews 10, 21, 23. Having, or in some translations it says, since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith. We have a high priest. He has the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he's applying that blood as the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary for you and for me. He's making sure there's no shortage of power having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, making sure there's atonement for you and for me. And he's doing that today and today and today until he comes so that we will have the power to overcome. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, another one of my favorites, says, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals, this is your favorite verse, just wait, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the earth. It's a long list. We probably could add more to it. But this is the beauty of this passage. And such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? The devil wants to make you think that as soon as you commit a certain sin, you're just that way for life. 
like Paul is forever going to be held as a uh, Christian-killing Christian. No, he's a new creature in Jesus Christ. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ. And such were some of you, whatever on the list, but that was what you were. It says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Does that give you hope? We can overcome. God wants to redeem your past for his glory. And I've seen this happen, and it's so marvelous. When you see somebody that's been in the depths of despair and the depths of sin, being able to speak to somebody's current issue right now and say, you know what, I've been there. What? Yeah. I know what that's like. You do? How did you ever get out of it? Pretty simple, let me tell you. I came to Jesus. Like after you got clean? No, I just came to Jesus. I humbled myself, and I asked for forgiveness, and he forgave me, and he cleaned me up. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Testimony is powerful, and nothing is more powerful than a life changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing more powerful. Because you can talk about theory, you can talk about Bible verses and passages and all these other things, but when the doubter sees a person that they knew before that's not that person anymore, they're completely different, they're a new creature in Jesus Christ, they say, wow, I gotta pay attention. I gotta pay attention. There's something here. That's why the blood of the martyrs is seed. What is it that gives them that, that peace and that hope and that assurance and they're singing hymns and they're burning them at the stake? I gotta have it. I gotta have it. That's the same in this story, the last verse from Mark chapter 2. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Here in the South, you get a pass. We ain't seen nothing like this before. <laughs> Come to Jesus as you are. Humbly ask for forgiveness for your sin. Allow him to bring healing to your life. And maybe the prayer will be something as simple as this. Lord, take my heart, for I can't give it. Is that an honest statement? It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. My promises are like ropes of sand. I've promised and promised and promised. So I'm just praying this prayer. Lord, you keep it pure, because I can't do it. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. It's a simple prayer. Christ's Object Lessons 159. Just pray the prayer. There was a member in our last church, one of our last churches, his name was Steve, and he, he was one of those that, uh, he first started coming to our church, but he had some issues in his life, but he was so sincere, he would come up, he likes to say, I need to come to the altar, Pastor. I mean, he had a thick, it wasn't even an accent, it was a drawl, drawl. I mean, he'd leave me a message, and I'd have to listen to it three, four times to understand what he's saying on the, on the message. Hi, everybody's around here, Steve. I'm down here at the church. I was wondering what you're doing. You're probably in the river ranks fishing somewhere. <laughs> I was wondering if you ought to help me, but I'll catch you later. Bye. But he was so sincere. And he'd come to me and he'd say, Pastor, I don't know how you spell that. Pastor, 
I done, I done did it again. I done pick up a bottle again. I done did this again. And, and he'd go, and he, with tears in his eyes, he would weep. And we would pray together and we'd study together. And so then he'd get his life cleaned up. He'd be doing great. He'd be filling his mind with, with, with sermons and Bible passages and all kinds of things that were good and positive. And then he'd fall off the wagon again. And God says, nope, no. And he would come down to the front and he would weep again and he would cry and we'd pray together and we'd stay together and he'd get back on his feet and he'd keep going and he'd keep going and then he'd fall off the wagon again. This happened for some time. But you know what? He kept coming back. That's the kicker, by the way. You keep coming back. You keep coming back to Jesus. You keep humbling yourself. And that's the part that was so refreshing about Steve is that he would humble himself and he'd say, I messed up. We don't do that. We don't, we, we don't mess up and we don't humble ourselves. We posture. We make sure we look good, that everything is polished. We try to fool people, but all we're fooling is ourselves. Or allowing the devil to keep his thumb on us. But he would humble himself. He would ask for forgiveness. He'd find accountability partners. I was one of them. And he kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. And eventually he came to an entire baptismal study class. He gave up one thing after another after another. Then he'd fall the wagon. Then he'd come back. Then he'd fall. I mean, isn't that our stories anyway? But we keep coming back. And he says, I want to be baptized. This was early in the process. I said, Steve, we'll get there. I want to, I want to make sure you understand what, what you're getting into. Oh, but I, I'm just, I want to be baptized. I said, you will, I promise. We'll get there. And finally, the day came. He was ready, and he wanted to be baptized in a creek like Jesus. And so on a Saturday afternoon, we went out into the woods. There were some people gathered around. We sang some hymns and claimed some promises. We, we talked about how God had been working in Steve's life and how Steve wasn't perfect, but he was going to keep coming back to Jesus. He was going to keep pressing on to follow him and allow his power to work in his life. And he was baptized in that watery, muddy grave because we had stirred up some silt. And he came out with this huge smile. Wrapped his arms around me, gave me this huge hug, picked me up off the ground. And I got to watch Steve go from, well, kind of a mess to a new creature in Jesus Christ. And I don't know where Steve is. You know, you've been gone long enough, numbers change, and people move away, and this and that. Has he fallen off the wagon again? Maybe he has. But according to the track record that I saw, I'm not worried. Because he'd get back up, he'd come to Jesus, he'd fall at the foot of the cross, he'd ask and plead and beg for forgiveness, it would be granted, and he'd say, Lord, give me the strength to honor and glorify you today. He'd pray this prayer, Lord, I can give you my heart, I can't give it. And that's what God is asking us to do. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us. While we were still sinners, you died for us. And if we will simply come to you and humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, you will begin that work that you long to do in us. And Lord, we don't do that just once. We do it over and over and over again. All along the way, praying that simple prayer, help me, Jesus, that we may bring glory to you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.